is all about the Benjamins, the Bucks, the Doe, the Moolah, the Cheddar of life. It's all about money, where Jesus meets money life. And I'm excited about this because when I was a wee baron, I couldn't wait to grow up and be a pastor to talk about money at church because everybody loves that theme. And I'm like, man, that day's coming, and today is the day, so I'm so excited about that. So we are doing this entire series looking at the practical things of life and how the Bible speaks into those things, Jesus speaks into those things. And today is a topic that is sensitive, that is important, that is all-consuming at times. And so I want our hearts to be ready for what uh, God has for us today what his word reveals to us. So I'm going to just take a minute right now to pray. But as I do, I want to remind you that we have an app with notes and in there you can follow along, fill in blanks. It's a great way to kind of keep some things in check and even you can store those away for the future too and come back to them at any time you want. But I'm going to go ahead and pray and we're going to get our hearts settled and we're going to jump right into it. Let's do it together. Jesus, I thank you that um, you really are practical. You know, like it's not just simply we look at the Bible and there's these lofty, uh, kind of like over-spiritualized ideas that nobody knows how to interact with, or it seems a little bit eclectic. No, you get really into the weeds with practical stuff, and I thank you for that, and I thank you for even the fact that the theme we're looking at today is something that your word speaks into at many, many levels. And so I, so I pray that we will be ready for what you have, that we will be um, eager to hear what you want us to do in our own lives with this topic, and that we would honor you in all of these things. And so Jesus, we love you, we thank you, and we praise you in your good and kind name. Amen. So what if I was to tell you that you could have financial freedom and enjoyment and security? You could have the kind of financial future you've always dreamed of where you could save, you could have fun, you could do great things, you could give back to the community and more. If I came and told you that today and I said, listen, it's not just an opportunity. If you're a part of this and it's family as you join it, how many would want to sign up? I bet you do. I bet you want to because I have an opportunity for you. It is known as Amway, my friends. I am here to unlock all your wildest dreams. Now, I thought about this. I thought, imagine if I really did roll in and pitch Amway on a Sunday morning, right? Now, I've seen some prosperity churches that it feels a lot like that, right? But that's not us. That's not how we roll. But, but I bring this up as an introduction because a number of years ago, um, I, I went to an Amway conference, and it wasn't because I was getting involved in Amway or wanted to get involved in Amway, and I want to be clear, I'm not trying to like say anything negative or derogatory about Amway, but I had some friends that were really, really into it, right? And so they said, hey, do you want to come to this conference they're having? Because John Maxwell is going to be speaking, and John Maxwell is a guy I like his books, and he's a really great leadership author and things like that. I'm like, that'd be awesome. I'd love to go, right? So it was a huge convention. And uh, it was fascinating as I became a student of what was going on. Because I came in as a rookie, I knew nothing, I wasn't looking to, to be a part of the program, but, but as it unfolded, it, it felt so much like a worship service. Like there was music and speakers, and, and the speakers, when they would share, they almost felt like preachers. And then the music, as they would sing these songs, people started singing the songs that they were singing. And it was really weird because it was like about leadership and about money making and all these different things. And I'm just like kind of stepping back for a while and trying to absorb what this is. I'm like, is it Amway or is it church? I can't quite tell, right? And, and then there was this thing, this theme that would come up among the speakers. And they would say um, like two different things simultaneously. 
In one vein, they would say, you know what? Money's not everything. It's not everything, right? Giving back to the community, family, friends, faith. That's the important stuff. Money isn't everything. But then in about three or four minutes, they'd say, but if you're gonna do this, you gotta go all in, 100%. You gotta give your everything to really make this succeed in your life. And so Ellen and I, we, we left the conference. We're in the car, we're talking, and, and we're decompressing it, and I kind of put on my theologian hat, and, and, and I was just walking back through the whole night, and I thought it was strange that here were these people that were saying, money's not everything, but you have to put in everything, give everything to get something that isn't everything, right? And, and that's where the irony was for me. I thought, how strange. And so from that, as we left and I was processing that out, I, I began to realize that we all live in a very unique kind of world. We all live in a unique land. I'm gonna call it the wonderful wizard of Oz. We live in that space. Now, right now, some of you are saying, poor Matt. He doesn't know how to spell. We're going to get him an annual subscription to Grammarly to help him out because that's not how you spell Oz. Well, today it's how we spell Oz, right? And, and here's why. There, there's two distinct realms when it comes to kind of this topic of finances in our lives and what the Bible says about this and how it reveals the land of Oz. The first is this, if you're taking notes. The Bible says money, ready, can be awful. Awful. Now, kind of a, a generalized reading, some people might look at the Bible and even say it probably leans more in the direction of being more pro-poor and anti-wealth. I mean, I think this is sort of like a stereotype that can be in there sometimes, and it's an understandable stereotype. I think we're going to break some of that up here in a minute, but it's understandable because there's times with the Bible, it speaks of money in ways where you go, man, it can be really, really awful. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, it says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. And so we probably all know of stories of people that that was their focus, that was their drive, and from that they have a sad, miserable, kind of just broken life because that's where they made their investment. That's an awful space to be in, right? And we all probably, like I said, know some stories of this. Jesus himself warned about something similar. He says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Right? Camels are big. Needles and their eyelids are very, very small. Right? And it seems to almost have this message like, oh, the rich. Watch out for the rich. Don't be rich. Rich is bad. Right? Like, this is like Bernie Sanders' life verse right here, I think. He's got this as an abtat, you know, just right there. Camel, eye, needle, bad stuff. So it sounds like when you read the Bible that money can be awful. But at the same time, the Bible also says that money can be awesome. Awesome. In fact, Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 19 says, Bread is made for laughter, wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. That's Jeff Bezos' life verse right there, right? He's like, that's right, I'm tired of homelessness, so I built a rocket to fly to space, you know? And that's kind of the way you like, that's, that's a weird verse in the Bible, right? But Ecclesiastes is kind of a weird book too, right? But it's not the only book that celebrates this. We see in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 22, the blessing of the Lord makes a person rich 
and with this, he adds no sorrow to it. And so the idea is like, God may bless you with wealth and not only wealth, like monetary gain, but in this, you don't have all the grief that comes with it. Like God can do that. So when it's looking at the Bible and we're trying to wrap our hands and our minds around the subject, what's interesting is you see two truths in play. In one sense, it says, you know what? Money can be a huge burden. It can be awful. And in another sense, it says, money can be a blessing and it can be awesome. And that's part of the irony, I think, sometimes of the Bible, because you go, wait, those are contradictory, right? How do you make those merge together? Well, this is one of the things I love about the Bible, that sometimes it does things that disrupts us a little bit, and we're left with these two truths, and we go, well, how do I reconcile this? And what the Bible tends to do is say, I'm giving you two truths for a reason, because they can both be true depending on other circumstances, So it can be awesome or it can be awful depending on what's going on at the deeper level. And so to break this down a little bit, I want to look at the differences in the land of Oz. And the differences, I'm going to kind of look at two separate passages, right? And we're going to see if you can kind of cash out on the difference between the two. And I want you to understand a lot of the message today is going to circle the drain in Ecclesiastes and circle the drain in 1 Timothy chapter 6. It's because there's things that are there that kind of show this juxtaposition that I think is important for us to wrestle with. So I want to start in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Here, Solomon in all of his wisdom says, Behold, here's what I've seen to be good and fitting. Here's something that's healthy to do. It's to eat and to drink and to find enjoyment and all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of their life that God has given, for this is our lot. So I love this. This is why Ecclesiastes is one of my favorite books. Enjoy the little things. Enjoy the simple moments, right? Life is complicated. Life is hard. Life can be pain. It can be unfair. So make sure you enjoy the little things. He says, but this is also true for everyone to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy those things as well, to accept their lot in life and rejoice in all of their toil. This is also the gift of God. So he says, for the person that has very little, enjoy what little you have. And for the person that has much, enjoy the much that you have. All of this is a gift of God. What a wonderful picture that God's saying, hey man, I'm supportive of this too. But then we also have Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 6. And he says, people who long to be rich fall into temptation, and they are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. He says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and some people craving money have wandered from the true faith, and they've pierced themselves with many sorrows. So we have these two different passages, and you get a sense of the theme and the tone, the two different awes. But if we align these and we we try to look at each one together, what you're going to see is a pattern that emerges, which is the difference between awesome and awful. Here's the awesome. It's out of Ecclesiastes again. Notice what it says. God has given. God has given this so we can accept it, enjoy it, and rejoice in it. Right? But the difference is then the other people, where the other people long for it, and they love it, and they crave it. See, it's not about whether you have or don't have wealth. It's this idea of God gives it, man, that's good. But if you're wanting, craving, driving, longing, hungering, you're incomplete apart from it, this is your all-consuming focus, that's going to be awful for you. 
It's going to lead to a life of pain and hardship and grief and never quite being satisfied. See, what we see in this whole thing is the difference between the Oz is whether you're controlling it or it's controlling you, right? It's the difference between enjoying it without longing for it, accepting it without craving it, possessing it without being possessed by it, and ultimately, it's mastering that which God provides as opposed to saying, I'm getting mastered by that which I'm longing for and trying to get more of. See, these kind of give us the fundamental differences. And if we drill it down even further to the deep part of this, the real core, the base truth is this. The heart of how much money matters is how much money matters to the heart. Right? This is where we say, is rich good? Is poor good? Is much or little good? It all comes down to this issue of what's going on internally with, with us. And there's a test for this. And the test isn't what we would answer on a piece of paper. Right? Because I think we all know the intellectual or at least the right answer to give when somebody says, hey, are you controlled by money? Hey, do you love money? Hey, is your life revolving around amassing stuff? We would all say no. Right? I've met very few people in my life that go, no, man, I'm all about money. Most people are like, no, it's not the most important thing. But that's not the test. See, the test, and, and honestly, when I take this test, I see where I sometimes fail this test. The test is really, it kind of boils down to things like, uh, do I fear if I don't have it? Do I place faith in it to provide for me? Is my joy great when I have it? My sorrow great when I don't have it? Like those kinds of things begin to give me a sense of barometer or bearing when it comes to how I relate to this. In fact, I look at the words of Jesus and the first document of the New Testament and he gets into this. And he says something here that is kind of uniquely uncomfortable. So it's in the Sermon on the Mount, which is, you know me, I, that's, my, that's my jam right there. I'm a dude that loves the Sermon on the Mount. And in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 6, he dedicates this big chunk to money, to our heart, to what we fear, what we long for, what we trust, where we put our focus. Are we worrying about tomorrow? Are we worrying about today? It's this whole huge section. And it opens up with something that honestly, if we just took it at face value, it should freak us out a little bit. Because it's so blatant. It's so black and white. He starts in verse 19. And he says, don't. Don't store up treasure here on earth where moths and rust and thieves, they just mess it up. Just that alone is enough, right? When Jesus says, don't do a thing, we already look at that and go, well, he doesn't mean always don't do a thing. I mean, you can kind of store up. It doesn't mean it that bluntly, but, but I just go, man, that's, that's an uncomfortable thing that it just kind of sits there a little bit. He says, don't do this. Instead, store up your treasure in heaven. And he says, here's why. Wherever your treasure is, there the desire of your heart will be. So this is brilliant on his part, right? And, and I was thinking about this just in relationship to kind of the world we're in right now. We're coming into the midterms, right? And everybody's talking about the economy and interest rates going up and inflation and all these different things. And politicians are all trying to come up with solutions and everything else. And, and it was interesting, even the Barna Group, which is kind of a Christian polling group, did a bunch of data stuff this last couple of weeks or just came out last week. And it was looking at kind of what are the things that are driving more conservative theological Christians in their voting decisions going into the midterms. And of the 21 or 22 different things listed, uh, we put money as the top three. 
And I thought, how strange that that was the focus. Like when they looked at other groups, money wasn't in the top three. We were in the top three for money. And then I think about Jesus' words here, and I think about this whole idea, because sometimes politicians will talk about GDP. When Jesus is talking about money here, he's talking about GPS. In other words, he's saying, where your heart is and where your attitude to money is and where your trust in and need for and focus on, that is a triangulation to know exactly where your heart's at. Right? That, that's, that's what he's getting at. And it's not just the desire for money. I, I, I think it's when we go, man, my security, my hope, my purpose, my meaning is wrapped up in that. That's why Jesus goes on to say, no one can serve two masters. For you either hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. He says you can't serve God and money. Now again, I'm not saying this is any of us. I I look at this and I go, no, I, I see where I have a problem with some of this, personally. Like, this can be my struggle, right? If I sincerely analyze, I just sincerely look at my own life, I have to ask the question, what do I trust more? The almighty dollar or the almighty God? Just my practical, real-life experiences. Not what I would write on a piece of paper, but when life gets really, really hard, is it the almighty God or the almighty dollar? Because these are in competition. And they're both mighty. They are. Money can do a lot of things in this world. This is why we have lobbyists and we have people that leverage money to get the things that they want in life. It is a powerful mechanism. But for us as followers of Jesus, where Jesus says these things to us, we have to really wrestle. Like, which is more mighty? Because that question, man, it can, it can drill a little deep. Because these two things, not only are they in competition, but they don't even share the same kind of economy. Now, some may say, well, come on, Matt, though, but there's a difference between God and money. Like, God's a person, money's stuff. Well, sometimes we let stuff kind of function like a god, right? We do. If we think about it, if we think, well, money will rescue us, that's kind of what we want a god to do. So when the politicians are saying, oh, we, we need to bring back this economy, the economy is going to make us stable, it's going to make us great, it's going to make us powerful, it's going to make us secure, that, that's kind of what God normally does. We're like, well, I want, I want the money to do that instead of maybe God. Or, or maybe, hey, I, I want money to fulfill me more than maybe God can fulfill what's going on inside of me, or for money to satisfy me and give me the American dream and the life I've always wanted. All these things can be the risk, right? Losing sight of the one who most fulfills, most rescues, most satisfies, and instead placing that on something that the Bible would call an idol. Because money can be an idol. The things attached to money can be idols. I didn't say this. Paul actually says it in Colossians chapter 3. He says, don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Now, I can read that, and we can hear that and say, that's good because I'm not greedy, right? That, that's other people, but that's, I'm not greedy. But I was thinking about that. Again, that's another one of those things, like greed is such a weird deal, right? If I'm just transparent for a moment, um, it's gray, right? Like, it's never really clear when somebody's really, really greedy. Well, we can point it out in other people, but in ourselves, it's a little bit harder to ascertain. It's like if you're walking out of somebody's house with their television set, that's clear you're a thief. You're like, oh, not my TV, not my house, but whatever, this is rad. Now, you, you cross the line, right? If you're like, hey, I'm with somebody that's not my spouse, that's clearly adultery kind of thing. 
But here, it's so murky, we can go like, ah, you know, I don't, I'm not greedy. I don't have a greed problem. But here's what's interesting. The Greek word for greed is a composite of two words. And it's real simple. All it means is this. Numerically more and to have. That's all greed means. Numerically more and to have. And I think about this and how often in our own lives we just want just a little bit more of a raise, just a little bit more of a bonus, just a little bit more of a house, just a little bit more of a security, just a little bit more of a saving, just a little bit more. Right? That's not uncommon. This is, I mean, we are immersed in a capitalistic free market system that kind of is predicated on always upward, onward, a little bit, bit more. Now, I want to be clear for a second, because again, I don't want to start to miscalculate things. Um, the idea of wanting is not automatically wrong. I, I don't want to make it sound like that. I, I just want to put us on notice that it can be self-destructive and defeating if our peace, or security, our anxiety, our happiness, our sleep, our health, our fear, our marriage, our hope is dictated by either the presence or absence of money. And again, because I'm all about confessing things to you because I, I don't want to make it sound like I'm up here on some perch and I'm looking down. Man, I, I get this one. Like I think about the last couple of years, especially with our building and raising funds and trying to get stuff done and everything else. How many just nights of anxiety and worry and doubt and like how, how are we going to make this all work and are we going to have enough resources to do it and everything else like I spent all this time like Jesus tells me in the Sermon on the Mount dude don't worry about tomorrow I'm like well if I don't who will you know it's just so dumb you know like honestly even in, in recent weeks we've had some different challenges we've been facing and working those through and I'll give an update here probably in the next week or so as we get a little bit more information but it's been like an elephant sitting on my chest for three weeks right because there is this sense of anxious at times and then we solve a problem and then anxious at times and we solve a problem and, 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 and I'm just like, this is, this is part of my problem. I'm putting too much stock in other things. Instead of saying, all right, God, whatever you want to do, I want to be along for the ride. I start putting trust or fear or hope or joy or grief surrounding this topic. And see, that's kind of what idolatry tends to do. It, it sets itself up as a substitute for God. It's a stand-in for God. And again, it wraps up our fear or our faith or our hope or our grief around financial resource. In fact, in Psalm 115, it talks about idols. And so it starts off and it says, why, why should the, the nation say, where is their God? So the writer is writing about how the other nations are looking to Israel and saying, ah, oh, well, your God doesn't show up to rescue you. Your God doesn't show up to save. And they're like, the writer here is like, where do you get off? Let's talk about your gods, right? They're nothing but idols. They're silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they don't speak. Eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they do not hear. A nose, but they don't smell. They have hands and feet, and yet they don't walk, and they don't make a sound in their throat. So this is the way the psalmist articulates idols almost 3,000 years ago, right? And I thought, that's amazing, because here's our currency today. They have eyes, but they don't see. Noses, but they don't smell. Mouths, but they don't speak. But these dead presidents exert more power over our lives than probably any living president. So strange. They're just a representation of silver and gold. Four inches by six inches dictates a lot 
as far as where we put our faith, where we put our hope, where we sense our grief or whatever else. And it's funny because we say things like money talks. Like, no, it doesn't. It's an idol that's mute and deaf and dumb. Money don't lie, right, because it don't talk. The invisible hand guides the free market. No hand, right? But, but this is how we start to personify some of these things. These are the descriptors of our own currency in that sense. And, and there's one part of this that just this is my own little bandwagon for a minute. I wonder how much God is just irate that he's like, and you put my name on it. Right? Like we talk about like using the Lord's name in vain. I, I'm sure he's like, in God we trust on the almighty dollar. You're kidding, right? You're joking. This is my competition, you know. Because that's what Jesus says. You can't serve both, but we tried to wedge them together in the 1950s. Right? So strange. The warning of Psalm 115 says, those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. Right? I'm bringing up all of this, not to to shame us, not to scold us, but simply to to sober us and, and warn us that there is this risk that if we trust in this too much, it will rob us more than enrich us. It will decay us more than bring flourishing to our lives because all of this is the life-robbing power of asking money to be the hero in our lives. Right? Sometimes we want money to wear a cape, have spandex and boots, and rush in to save our lives, right? A little bit more credit score will save me. A little bit more income will save me. A little bit more booming economy, that will save me. But in reality, money isn't that powerful. Money can't solve, really, the problems of life. In fact, in 1 Timothy 6, Paul says, teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud, which makes perfect sense, but then end this also, not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. So unreliable. Remember a year ago? Remember how things were so different? Like you had friends that were selling their houses and they were getting bids at like 100 over, 200,000 over, 300,000 over asking price. It was just madness, right? And the interest rates were low and the economy was solid and things looked good and everything looked bright. And now I drive from the hub to my home and I pass like 10 homes that are all for sale. And they've all been for sale for a while. And the, the interest rate's now above seven, just went above seven this week for housing. Like, it's so crazy how you realize that, you know, markets turn and jobs change and health gets bad and illnesses happen and things break and the list can go on and on where if we trust it, it's unreliable. Savings, really not that safe. Securities, not so secure. Like if we pause and we're honest about it, we realize that, yeah, the things that we can really trust in, maybe we can't trust in as much as we should. And not just the kind of the monetary side, I think there's also this psychological reality that that money can't fully calm us. In fact, again, in Ecclesiastes 5, it says, those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. Right? And it's interesting, because again, you know the stories. I, I remember watching an interview with Harrison Ford, and he was talking about how depressed he is in life. You know, here's this guy, rich, famous, has it all, and he's like, nah, not so happy. Kind of curmudgeon Right? And there's a lot of wealthy people that just aren't happy in the end. It's so discouraging. And what happens is, is you begin to realize, when you analyze that, that you just see money isn't the hero. 
It reminds me of like when I was a kid, you know, and I couldn't wait to go to the mall at Christmas to see Santa because that's the real Santa from the North Pole. I'm going to tell him what I want, but he's just got reindeer and fly, and he can go everywhere super fast, and it's going to be amazing. And then one day that year comes in where you realize this isn't what I thought it was. And the hero is not the hero I thought they are, and everything changes. See, that's the space we should be with money. We realize it's not the hero. It's a tool. It's a resource. It's a thing. But it's not the hero. Instead, we want to do something very different. We want to realize the life-enhancing power of using money as a tool. Instead of seeing it as a hero that saves, we want to leverage it as a tool in wise ways. Again, back to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud, not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable, but rather the trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. He says, tell them to use their money to do good, that they should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. And by doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life. There's a number of things in there that are so good. The first thing I think about here is that money can be enjoyed, provided money isn't our joy. It can be enjoyed, provided it isn't our joy. You ready? Money can be a blessing. It can be a blessing, provided you don't ask it to be your blesser. In fact, if anything, money is an opportunity for a full life. It is. As long as you don't think, my life is only full when I have the money, right? So it all is about angle and perspective as we relate to this. In fact, Proverbs 15, 16 kind of reminds us it's better to have a little with the fear of the Lord than to have great treasure and inner turmoil. It's just putting it all in perspective and balance for us. We can have mastery over money as long as money doesn't have mastery over us. And so how do we move forward in this? How do we do this as, as wisely as possible? Well, I'm going to give you some things that are just reminders. I didn't want to come in today and close this out by saying, here's all the things you have to mind to do this well. Because I think everything I'm about to say, you're like, oh, I know that. Oh, I know that. Checklist, checklist, checklist. You know it. I know it. We all know it. So I just want to give some reminders of what we can do to kind of wield our wealth well. I'll give you five fast lightning round reminders. First is this. When it comes to money, we all want to make sure that we discern it wisely. We discern it wisely. Because there is a difference between having it and knowing how to handle it. Right? Those are different things. And so I have a vivid picture in my mind of an example of this. Uh, way back in the day, I used to be a youth pastor. And I ran an internship program when I was doing that. And I had a bunch of different interns. And I had one intern named Pete and another intern named Yogi. Yes, I had an intern named Yogi, which is awesome. Because every time I'd say it, I'd giggle inside and be like, boo, boo, boo. You know? So it was awesome to have a dude named Yogi. And so we decided to have this intern retreat. And so we went to a lake in eastern Washington. It was at the end of summer. Everything was dry. Everything was tender. And we decided, hey, we need to build a fire. So Yogi, boo, 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 he sits down and he digs a hole and puts out the rocks and everything else. And we're going to build a fire in the fire pit. Pete, on the other hand, was a pyro, pyro Pete. And he grabs an eight-foot branch that had all these pine needles on it. He lights it on fire and he's running down the beach, Right? with all this dry grassland everywhere. And I'm like, there it is. Pete had fire. Yogi knew how to handle fire. There's a difference, 
right? One's dangerous, one's safe. And the same thing applies, right? We want to make sure we know how to handle how to have without being reckless. In fact, it's really about wisdom. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 13 through 15 says, joyful is the person who finds wisdom, the one who gains understanding. For wisdom is more profitable than silver. Her wages are better than gold. Wisdom is more precious than rubies, and nothing you desire can compare with her. What I love about this is that he's using wisdom in juxtaposition to wealth. And it's just like, man, if you have wisdom, you're going to do wealth well. If you don't have wisdom, you may do wealth very poorly. It's a good reminder. Discern it wisely. The second thing, respect it continually. Respect it all the time. P.T. Barnum said, a sucker is born every minute. He actually stole that from Artemis Ward, who I think stole that from the very essence of money, who stole that from Solomon. Solomon says this, trust in your money and down you go. But the godly flourish like leaves in spring. See, I say respect it because money is like Vegas or guns or fire. Great in the hands of the wise, terrible in the hands of the fool. Right? And, and so we go, man, then I want to make sure that I am truly respecting what it is and what it can do. The third thing, budget it thoughtfully. Budget it thoughtfully, not feelingly or guessedly or hopefully, thoughtfully. Proverbs 27, 23. Know the state of your flocks and put your heart into caring for your herds, for riches don't last forever. Right? It's a simple thing of just saying, you know what? Uh, God wants you blessed. He doesn't want you stressed. So have a little bit of a plan to go like, okay, I, I got to make sure my house needs painting next year. I'm going to need a water tank. I mean, what are it? Like just to be aware. I had a friend of mine years ago that during the dot-com boom, he thought, man, this is how I'm going to get really, really wealthy. And so he liquidated everything he could. He took out all of these loans and bought all of the stock on dot-com stuff. And remember that when that blew up and it became nothing? To this day, he's still paying that off because he didn't budget thoughtfully. He budgeted like kind of haphazardly, didn't factor in all the stuff, just thought, I'm going to go right for the target in the moment. And, and it really didn't serve him well because he wasn't really thinking in these ways. Now, if you're discerning, you're respecting, you're budgeting, the next one's really important, and it's all about investing. Investing it robustly. But I want to be clear. I want to back us up for a second here. When I'm talking about this, I am not going to, I'm not talking about stocks, your portfolio. That's not the investing I'm talking about. You know, you're investing as you're investing on that front. Investing into this earthly life, that's something for you to figure out. I'm talking about how God calls us to invest in bigger ideas, in kingdom kinds of things. And so there's an investing that's now that has a payoff that is later. So the investing that is now is seen when, when it says in Proverbs 11, give freely and become more wealthy. Be stingy and lose everything. See, the investment I'm talking about here is investing into people, into things that God cares about, into things that you're passionate about that helps those who are less fortunate, those who have needs that are different than yours. Like, there's something about that. When you do that, it's going to enrich you, bless you, as you're investing into others and blessing them. I have a really good old friend of mine, Corey, that was that guy. He's the guy that gives all the time, invests into people just recklessly. And what's funny about it is that God keeps giving him more money, so he keeps giving it away. Like, he was one of the pastors I pastored with. His wife is a teacher, he was a pastor, and in five years, they paid off their house. And you're like, that's pretty impressive on those two salaries. But what was more impressive is that all that five years, Corey just kept giving money away. 
And I would ask him, like, dude, what's the story? He goes, I don't know. I give money away. God gives me more money, so I give it away. And I put a little bit toward my house, and I give it away. Most generous guy I knew. He proved this passage to me, right? You are generous. You're investing. You give freely. You get more wealthy. I've also seen people that don't, don't give, don't share, don't invest into those things, and they always feel like they don't have enough. Never have enough. I will do it if I had more, but we don't have more, so we can't do it because we don't have enough. Like, there's this weird dynamic there. But then, if we do this, it pays off later, right? The investment pays off. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, teach those who are rich again in this world not to be proud, not to trust in their money, but they should trust in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. So he says, tell them to use their money to do good. Then they will be rich in good works and generous to those in need, and they're always going to be ready to share with others, and by doing this, they store up their treasure. See, I love this because, you know, we always love to say, you can't take your money with you. And I go, absolutely right, but you can pay it forward. That's what's so weird. Like, the only way you can get an exchange rate from earthly currency into kind of eternal currency is you take the earthly currency and you invest it away from yourself and into others. And God's like, well, man, you're getting that with interest. Right? Like a hundredfold, Jesus says. Like, the payoff is immense on the other side. And I think it's because it's an act of faith, Right? The, the competitor of God, money, the competition, we're saying, it doesn't have me. God has me. His priorities have me. God's like, sweet, I'm going to give you a hundredfold on every dollar. That's fantastic. That's beautiful. That's what we want to invest it in these ways. But then last, you ready? Here's a good one. God also wants you to enjoy it fully. He does want you to enjoy what you have fully. He's not anti-money. He's not anti-wealth. He's not anti-these things. Again, what did it say? Teach those who are rich in this world to not trust their money, but trust in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. So, does that mean having money's bad? No, it means having money's great. If it doesn't have you and you just have it, you're not longing, craving, hungering, but rather God's given it to you, you can enjoy it. So Christmas is coming up soon. Have an epic Christmas. Drink an expensive bottle of wine. Have a really grand dinner. Go on a great trip. Whatever it is you want to do. It's like, it's okay to do that. So God is not anti that at all. Have a blast in those things. Just remember that God made it all good. And if God gives it to us for our good, that's great. But if this becomes our God, that's not good and that's bad. And so the warnings are always the same. It's where the heart is, where the cravings are, what we desire to do with it, how we long to give it, and how we long to enjoy God in the process of it. Let's go ahead and pray together right now. Jesus, we are immersed in a system where money is incredibly powerful, valuable, tempting. It's useful, and at the same time, it's lustful. Like, there's so much in there. I, I pray that you will give us the wisdom to wield it wisely. That we will have a heart that longs for your best in what we do. I'd also like to say if there's anybody that is watching online or in the room where you go, money's been my God for far too long and I want Jesus to be my God. I want to follow him. That is a prayer way for you where you say, Jesus, I have, I have tried to, to just steer my own ship for too long. I want you to take over my life. Forgive me of my sin. Come into my life. Make me new through your work, your cross, your resurrection. You make that your prayer and your way. He hears that, brings you into the family, and we would love to know about that. If you make that decision today, tell us. Let us know you made that decision. And Jesus, for all of us, man, we thank you again for the grace and compassion you show toward us 
and for the fact that you were always in it with us. We thank you so much and praise you in your name. Amen.